Welcome to another episode of Doe, a podcast discussing Doe cases from around the world. I'm Kat. And I'm Allie. And this is our last episode of 2019. Happy holidays. Yep. We are, well, I'm going to be super busy with work for the next two weeks and won't be sleeping much. And that's the flip side of me because I just finished a big contract, like a show contract. So I'm going to be sleeping so much. Sleep on my behalf, please. I'm going to be sleeping all of the time, <laughs> basically. <laughs> that's what I would be doing. Yeah. And yeah, I don't have a forensic fact this time because it's it's just so busy. That's fine. But I'm there's one that I'm going to have for next time, but I have to watch an episode of 60 Minutes for it because I have notes on it, but I don't know where the notes are because I was kind of not great at taking notes in a consistent place during my last year. Well, watching 60 Minutes doesn't seem like bad homework. No, it's pretty good. Yeah. The episode makes me mad, but it'll result in a good forensic fact. So should we just get started then? Yes. So because of the holidays, I literally typed in doughs found around Christmas and found Christmas dough. So my sources for this case were the Dough Network, NamUs, NECMEC, which are always my sources, as well as an article by Joshua Sharp from... Jacksonville.com, the Florida Times Union, and this article is April 18th, 2015. On December 21st, 1988, a truck driver pulled over on a dirt road off Georgia 82, which I think is a highway, near an isolated dump in Millwood, Georgia. When he walked a bit into the woods, he spotted an old TV console and gave it a kick because I guess that's what you do. When you see old TV consoles, you just got to kick it. It's like tires on a car. Or a rock or a piece of ice. (laughs) You just got to kick it. So to his surprise, it broke open to reveal a black metal suitcase wrapped in duct tape and a plastic sheet. The console had been nailed shut with plywood, which is probably why it broke open so easily. Because we're talking like an 80s TV. Those things were built. They're basically pieces of furniture. They are. Yeah. Oh, also, I should probably add right now... This is a very rough case. Thank you for the warning. Yeah. Mentally preparing myself. Yeah, so brace brace yourself. The suitcase was filled with cement, and encased in the cement was a duffel bag containing the remains of a little girl wrapped in a brown baby blanket. Oh, no. Yeah. According to Ware County Sheriff Herbert Bond, the girl had been dead for one to two months. An autopsy was inconclusive due to the advanced state of decomposition, but she didn't appear to have been shot or stabbed. And this is hard, but investigators could not determine if she had been alive when she was sealed inside the suitcase. Oh, no. So really, really, really hoping she wasn't and that she just died of something that didn't leave any evidence on her body. Yeah. Because of the date she was found, she became known as Christmas Doe. The girl was black and probably three to four years old. She was approximately 2'8 to 3'1 in height and 23 to 27 pounds. Her curly black hair was tied back in a ponytail with a brown rubber band and decorated with colorful bows. Although no earrings were found, the girl's right ear was definitely pierced and probably her left as well. So Mm -hmm. I think maybe just her right one, the lobe was left. So they were able to tell. For sure that one. And you would just assume the other one. 
Christmas Doe was found wearing a disposable diaper, mm. a white sweater with a red horse emblem on the left side of the chest, and white thermal pajama pants with maroon cuffs. Oh, baby. I actually have a picture of that. So here are the pants. Oh. I think these were like reconstruction ones. Yeah. And then the sweater. Oh. Did they say how worn they were or if it, it looked like they were like kept in good condition? No, there was no indication. They just said like the color and what they looked like. And this was one composition that was done. Oh, oh the little bows. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, okay. I say this every time. I really want to give her a hug. I know. It's just... Uh. And then here's... Neck because they always do a really good job. Neck is always really great. Mm-hmm. So after Christmas Doe's discovery, investigators went door to door in the small town of Millwood, but didn't find any information. Investigators circulated a sketch of the girl as well as a clay bust, so a photo of the clay bust, but nothing. So I think the clay bust is the one with the red bows. Oh, so yeah. That one? Yeah, that looks like clay. And then I think the sketch is this one where she is wearing yellow bows or actually maybe this one which looks like the oldest one and yes that absolutely looks like it maybe has been photocopied yeah so it was actually probably that one one lead that was followed was that of the disappearance of kimberly janice boyd but christmas doe was not a match in 2009 investigators worked with a tv station in albany new york to put out a story on christmas doe but unfortunately this did not result in any new leads and that's it. That's it? That's it. That's all we have. That's all we have. They, they didn't, like, do any tracking of, like, where did this TV come from? Let's look at the serial number. From what I saw, they just searched everything. They can't find any missing persons reports oh, no. matching her. Like, And the community of Millwood, they were talking about is a very close-knit community. And no one's saying anything if they do know anything. And chances are someone does know something. But it reminds me, um, is it Opalika? Opal, I think it's called Opalika. It could be Opalika. I'm bad at words, but I think it's it Opalika. Like Opalika. But it reminds me a bit of that. Where I was going to mention that, yeah. Where it's like, it sounds like just a case of abuse, which is already really wrong, but gone like terribly wrong. Yeah, with this one, it's hard to say because um, she had her hair nicely done oh, yeah, and everything. True. So I... Part of me is like, is this abuse or maybe something happened where she accidentally died? And they and thought that maybe people would think it was abuse. They panicked and yeah. hid her. Not knowing how she died, I think, is hindering a lot of it. Because if there were signs, like if there were signs of abuse, like I think they would say it, like they broken bones would, that yeah. healed or something. So, and here's my question: How old was she again? Uh, three to four. Okay, so just not quite at the age where, like, if she was in school, she would have been. Yeah. Missed, which is so sad because she died before she was able to even go to school. Unless she was, like, in preschool or something. But you'd think even then someone would mention something. Yeah, which is why I'm kind of assuming that she didn't do preschool. Yeah. So, yeah, with this one, it I don't even – I can't even really think of any theories other than – accidental or abuse because it doesn't seem like it was a stranger no like a stranger normally wouldn't go to that much effort to conceal the body like the layers upon layers upon layers and they would have had to find a have a tv like did they have a tv console just lying around and like all these things 
Like, it just, it feels personal. It does feel personal. And I could also see, um, whether it was abuse or not abuse, I could see, uh, this is me completely extrapolating, but maybe after she was dead, someone was just like really distraught over it and trying to like give her some sort of semblance of some sort of respectful burial. And that's why they did the, the hair. hair stuff to be like the one last time that they can do that. Yeah. Like I don't <sighs> get the impression that she was alive when she was sealed in the suitcase. Like it doesn't really match with everything else. No. Yeah, I really feel like it was abuse that either that it could be that there were signs of abuse on the skeleton that um investigators aren't releasing. That's always a possibility. Yeah. Because we're just going with what we've we, been able to find on the internet, which yeah. sometimes is not, not a lot. lot. So it's either that there was abuse that wasn't showing on the skeleton, or it was showing on the skeleton that investigators haven't released, or accidental. I just those seem to be the two that I'm leaning towards. Yeah. But I really think a family was involved. Like her family. Yeah. Yeah. That's really sad. Like there have been no updates since 2009 is from what oh, I can tell. Boy. Did uh sorry, did we talk about DNA? They do have DNA. Okay, good. Um that's how they were able to exclude Kimberly Janice Boyd, but I'm not sure if they've entered her into Jed match or anything like that. It could be that they haven't yet, but they might. I think this is what remind why it reminds me of Opalika is just it seems like a fa like family members were involved, but nobody's saying anything. It's like one of those things where, again, I'm completely extrapolating because I feel like that's what you have to do in this case. But maybe it's like, if I won't tell, I won't tell if you won't tell. Exactly. Like, like it's kind of like a pact. Yeah. Covering from a, for like the responsible family member or yeah. something like that. So yeah, that's this the very short story of Christmas dough. Mm. Well... I completely blanked that it was Christmas because I was kind of in just like I finished this finished this job mode and then like then Christmas stuff will yeah happen. Uh so this one has nothing to do with Christmas. That's okay. Absolutely nothing. It's one of those cases where I really feel like there's been not a lot of talk about this dough except for one article. I just thought I don't know. Part of the reason why I really like doing this podcast is because I know that if I was a doe, I would really want people to be talking about me and like mm -hmm. trying to figure it out. So I feel like every doe deserves to have that spotlight. Mm -hmm. And I felt very sad that this doe hasn't had that. So on to the doe. Okay. Okay. So I will be talking about the Snohomish County John Doe from July 1980. There are so many does from this area. So I just want to specify this, that this is the one from July 1980. Like there's one from 94. There was one that sounded like it might have been from 1977, 79, which maybe might have been 1980. So this is the one from July. What is going on in that county? I, that's the thing. I don't think any of these are really related. He's in NamUs, but I don't think he's on the Doe Network. And there aren't many articles or sites. Like, there's, n I could not find any talk of this Doe on Reddit. There is one web sluice thread, but it is one person who just explained the case and explained that there are two rule outs on NamUs. There was no discussion about it. That's so weird. Yeah. And there's not even a Doe Network 
profile. It's just NamUs, an article, and unidentified wiki. So those are my sources wow. for this one. The fact that there's no Reddit one, they have posts about everybody. Everything. So that was that kind of, I want to signal boost this one because it does seem like it could be solvable if people knew about it. So yes, my sources, a big, huge source for this one is a great article from the Everett Washington Herald on heraldnet.com by Caleb Hutton. And the article is titled, Who Am I? A Man Washed Up in the Stillaguamish River in 1980. I am sorry if you're shaking your fist at your phone or app right now. I looked, I tried looking up how to say Stillaguamish and there was nothing. This doe is called Snohomish County John Doe, but he's also sometimes called Stilly Doe, according to the article. A lot of this is from the article. I I also took from NamUs and Unidentified Wiki. Anyways. On July 23rd, 1980, about an hour north of Seattle, an indigenous male was found in a log jam by a teen who was fly fishing in the Stillaguamish River. And this was about half a mile northwest of the Interstate 5 bridge. They could find no signs of foul play. Unidentified wiki lists the cause of death as, quote, natural or drowning, but, um... Namus says that the cause of death is natural versus drowning, unquote. Uh, and there was no water found in his lungs. Oh. So I think that's why they say natural versus drowning to signify that, yes, he was found in a river, but he probably did not drown. In so it could be river. like instead like a heart attack while going over a bridge and something fell over or something like that. Yes. So this is a quote directly from the article by Caleb Hutton, and I'm quoting directly because it's a lot of information said very succinctly, and I could not say it any better, and it's really important, and it's good background. Quote, in the 1970s, a federal court reaffirmed tribal fishing rights in the landmark Bolt decision. Gill netting tribal fishermen were a common sight at the time. The Stillaguamish cuts through the ancestral lands of its namesake tribe. Surviving members gained federal recognition in 1979. The Tulalip Indian Reservation sits five miles south of Sylvana. And Sylvana is around where the stow was found. So I don't know uh, what investigations were done at the time, like if they asked around communities in the area or if they even had a facial estimation because the one from this case is actually from 2018. So I don't know what the investigation was at the time or if there even was one because I went on newspapers.com and there was, I don't know if maybe they're missing a newspaper from the area. That's probably actually what is happening, but I could find no mention. And I went through every single newspaper that I could find on newspapers.com from 1980 in Washington state. So I think we have to bring up that this is an indigenous case and probably part of the reason why he was not in at the top of the newspapers when this happened was because he's not a white girl. Yeah. And also like that plus just finding a body like, oh, there's a lot of doe cases where if a body is just found, they don't talk about it, as we've discovered with so many of the cases yes. like that. But no, for sure, the indigenous thing was definitely a huge factor in why it wasn't reported. Uh, NamUs lists the man as 30 to 70 years old, approximately 5 foot 7 inches tall, and 150 pounds. And the postmortem interval, or how long it's been since he died. And- PMI. Yeah. Uh, was approximately three months, which means he died probably around April 1980. 
Since he was found in 1980, that means he could have been born anywhere from the 1910s to the 1950s. And what were the state of his remains? You know what? I didn't really see anything about that. So what this doe was wearing, um, and Naaman says that this was all found on his body. Uh, He was wearing an undershirt and long underwear, a red flannel shirt, a gray or black suit jacket, black or gray cotton trousers, gray or brown stockings, Oxford-type shoes with leather slash metal slash paper arch supports. It's a lot of material going into those arch supports. Pretty intense. The brand of the shoes were Winthrop, and he had a 40-inch leather belt with a belt buckle with the letters GRN on the belt buckle. So this could potentially be his initials, Mm. or it could just be like a manufacturer's mark. Uh, The belt didn't make it into an evidence box, and there are no photos of it. So who the heck knows what this belt looked like? Let's just visualize that for a second, because I was like, something like it just... There's a bunch of different types of clothes happening here, and I like I just had to like sit and be like, what yeah. does that actually look like? And how long did they estimate he'd been dead? Three months. Okay, so that's June, May, April. Okay. Um, so it sounds like a typical business suit, but with no tie. And the flannel shirt, note that um, unidentified Wikipedia doesn't specify it's a plaid button-down flannel. Which is what I was assuming, because when someone says a red flannel, I might then I assume plaid. plaid. But in the uh, facial is that estimation or approximation, approximation, I always say estimation wrongly. So in the facial approximation, it's just red. So I feel like there was no plaid, mm. and that's just something that like our '90s brains just jump assume. To. Yes. So it's not a plaid shirt. Obviously, I feel like this is a case, perhaps. It was not like he was fishing. It doesn't sound like he was prepared for like a day out on the water. It sounds like maybe he fell in somewhere. Yeah. Uh, he had hair and stubble, which was about an eighth of an inch long, and it was starting to gray. He was afflicted with coronary artery atherosclerosis, which may or may not have been the cause of death. Okay. It's a buildup of plaque on the walls of the arteries that supply the heart with blood, so it slows down the flow of blood. Yeah. So basically... The heart attack thing. Yeah. So his teeth were in bad shape. I couldn't find any other descriptions of his teeth other than bad shape. He had a hammer toe deformity on the big toe of his left foot, which a hammer toe is basically when the joint of the toe is flexed or bent downward. It's a little bit rare for it to affect a big toe as it's usually the second or third toe. Oh, I always thought it was it. a big toe. No, it's huh. um it's I think it's usually the second or third um because it's very common with shoes that don't fit well well like heels with a point, you know, Ooh. like those really pointy. Yep. And they basically just like squish your toes. And it can also a hammer toe can also be present at birth and other causes can be arthritis. A toe injury, tightened ligaments or tendons, or a high foot arch. Oh. Like the arch support. The foot arch. So, I don't know, maybe if they had mentioned this at the time, maybe someone would have been like, I remember Jerry, he had that traumatic toe injury, and that's why he had, like, it's one of those things where, like, there's so little information in this Mm -hmm. case that it could totally be a tell if they had distributed the information to people where it could help. Yeah. So... He was exhumed in late 2017 to see if it would be possible to uncover any DNA, but his grave had rainwater seep in and then dry <sighs> over years and years and years and years. So that obviously can degrade the DNA. Yeah. 
Um, but they sent his bones to the University of North Texas, and they're able to extract his DNA in March 2019, and they're going to be compared to DNA in CODIS. Okay. So it sounds like this case where there's literally, it's just a shot in the dark. It sounds like this case could actually be solvable. Yeah, because you said sent 2019? Yes. Okay, then yeah. March 2019. So yeah, yeah, this could be an update, which is exciting. Oh, I hope so. I hope so too. And I also just wanted to bring up that the article by Caleb Hutton, you should all like go read this article. It's great. He's got other articles on does. It was just, it was a great resource. Uh, the article brings up the point that a lot of genealogy and DNA sites have lots of European ancestry info uploaded, but there's not as much indigenous American mm-hmm. data on the sites. So there's a really great interview with genealogist Junelle Davidson. Uh, so she has a genealogy group and they bought and distributed 17 DNA tests to people during talks she did on the Tula Lip Reservation. Okay. So uh, it was her hope in doing that to help solve cases like Stilly Doe and Spencer Island Doe, who Caleb has also written about. And yeah, that's that's all I know about this case. Well, a lot considering you only had like one resource that you could... It was a, to be fair, it was a very good resource. Well, that's true. That's always the best is when there's a really good resource for something that doesn't have much information. Yes. So there is a facial approximation by Natalie Murray, who's a former Kent police officer, and uh, this was done in 2018. I'm trying to figure out if that's just a really pronounced brow ridge or if she's drawn a unibrow. She did say that, um, I think it's just a really pronounced brow ridge, but I think uh, in the article she described it as like a sleepy kind of looking feature based on like his eye socket shape. And then I just street viewed what north of I-5 looks like today. Oh, okay. Your basic yeah, river. what I was river. picturing. Yep. Well, I'm excited to see if this has an update. Yes, I really hope it does, because I feel like this is one where it was completely just forgotten more than some of the other cases. So I yeah. hope that he's got his time and his peeps helping him. Forensic people. Forensic peeps. You have to start yours or I'm just going to keep talking. <laughs> I'm kind of waiting to see how long you just start to say peeps. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to the identified, unsolved one. Mm, Only yes. my first one was Christmas-themed oh, or yes. holiday-themed. This one is just one I came across. So my main sources for this case were an article from 6WBRC uh, by Beth Shelburne, uh, published March 2nd, 2018, and updated August 14th. And the other one is from the Gadsden Times, an article by Donna Thornton, published March 2nd, 2018. On May 28th, 1998, a fisherman found the skeletal remains of a young man in the Coosa River near the Dub Parker boat launch in Gadsden, Alabama. The man had stab wounds to the sacrum and right ilium, so that's the hip bone, uh, as well as multiple bullet holes in his skull. Investigators also concluded that there was evidence of possible beating and burns, likely as a way to hinder identification. Oof. So that's rough. It, it sounds like they set the body on fire, oh, possibly. Uh, his jaw was missing, as well as some maxillary teeth. Four of his remaining teeth showed fractures, which investigators thought might be from using them to open bottles or as a tool. Mm. And he didn't show any signs of fillings, but I'm not sure if he had cavities or anything like that. The man was determined to be black, approximately 17 to 21 years old, and 5'6 to 5'9, 
But that was about all the information authorities had. Oh, no. Um, no clothing or jewelry was found with the body, and he didn't match any local missing persons reports. So it pretty much went on a standstill. <laughs> Fifteen years after he was found, Nekmek released a composite drawing of what the man might have looked like, but it was difficult to determine without his mandible, because it's like half the face is oh, yeah. you're guessing at that point. Wow. So someone really did not want him identified. Well, I think with that, it was just decomposition. Unfortunately, it wasn't until 2018 that he was identified through DNA as 20-year-old Laetuan Brown from Zion, Illinois. He was known as Tuan, so that's how I'm going to refer to him <laughs> through the rest of this. Shortly before his death, Tuan had moved to Kenosha, Wisconsin, but it sounds like he was in Zion when he disappeared. According to his sister, Laisha, I think that's how you say it, on the day Tuan was last seen, he'd gone to a cousin's house to get his hair braided before getting picked up by someone and then disappearing. Oh no. Since it wasn't unusual for Tuan to go missing for periods of time, it wasn't until more than six months after he was last seen that his mother reported him missing to the Zion police. From what I've gathered, he was last seen on Mother's Day 1998, and that's why he was back in Zion. His body was found at the end of May, so May 28th, mm-hmm. but he wasn't reported missing until around valentine's day 1999 because so basically he was found pretty quickly after he went missing but no one knew it was him and so his family thought he was still alive somewhere which is why they took a while to report him missing since it wasn't unusual for him to just go off somewhere one rumor was that he'd been arrested under a false name or killed in kenosha so the kenosha police took over the case for several years but never found anything Finally, in 2016, Sergeant Paul Curley from the Zion Police came across Tuan's case and got in contact with his mother. From there, he registered Tuan's case in NamUs and submitted his parents' DNA, which was matched to a body stored in the Forensic Anthropology Center at the University of Tennessee. Sergeant Curley then tried to get a death certificate for the body found in the Coosa River, but for unknown reasons, a death certificate was never created. Hmm. Um, Etowah County, which is where he was found, they they don't know why one wasn't created because normally death certificates are created. So I think it was just like an oversight. It was just like a clerical error kind yeah. of. Uh, so it wouldn't be until 2018, two years later, that a death certificate was finally generated and Tuan's family got him back. Wow. Yeah. So they had a match in 2016, but couldn't get the body until 2018. Wow. So now investigators are working to find out who killed him. Oh, boy. And in the article, they said there's like multiple police departments are working together on this. So, but they aren't saying why, because obviously it's an active homicide investigation. That sounds really promising. It kind of sounds like they have an idea of what's going on. Yeah, that's good. So to quote the article um, from his sister, she said that he was like a young Michael Jordan because he was so tall and handsome. Which you can picture that in looking. Yes. I'll show you the photos. And yeah. Mm. Uh, Tuan was a free spirit, loved to make people laugh. And he was trying to change his life when he vanished at age 20. So that indicates to me that maybe he was with the wrong people or something like that. And that's maybe what prompted his move, but also maybe why he was murdered. Yeah, it sounds like. It sounds very targeted and personal. Yes. To inflict that much damage. Yes. And to also the fact that they went to the trouble of burning the body. To me, that signifies, and this is just me as a graphic designer who has no business talking about like police theories or whatever. Um, I feel like 
that could be a signal that it's someone who's close to him because if that was like a serial killer or someone who like you could not like could not be traced back to him they probably wouldn't have that much of a worry about his being identified but if it was like oh yeah he was seen with that person all of the time for like weeks leading up to his death and i'd be interested to know who he was picked up by from his cousin's house mm-hmm that's a, like probably a major suspect. Also, he was found really far away from where he lived, which is why it took so long for them to piece together that this body belonged to this missing person. It's kind of like Drew Greer. Yeah, exactly. As soon as a lot of distance is put between where someone was last seen and where they're found, it gets hard. Yeah. It's good because it's literally like a needle in a haystack mm-hmm. situation. So I have some pictures. The first is the Dub Parker Boat Watch in Gadsden, and this is where Layton was found. That's the awesome sign. It is a very awesome sign. It's got a lot of wildlife in it. It says, renew our rivers. The giant fish is about to eat an eagle. Yeah. Itoa is serious about keeping its rivers beautiful. The fish are going to eat you if you litter. But also, it's not at all like what I was picturing. I don't, I think I was picturing more of like um, a harbor, like, you know, in Toronto near like uh, Cherry Street, that little bit. Oh, I was yeah. kind of picturing more of that. But like that's a pier. Like, this yeah, isn't really a pier. That looks like it's definitely a harbor, I guess. But it looks more like just a lake. So the fact that they found his body is even more impressive. So other than that, there's... There's this really nice picture. I think he looks maybe oh. like 9, 10-ish. Very early middle school, maybe. Yeah. So sweet. And then... And this picture comes up a lot, too. I think this is closer oh. to when he disappeared. It kind of looks like 1920. That's so sweet. They both and look it, like so proud. Like, yeah, this is my mom. Yeah, yeah I, think my it's a, I think this is mom. Definitely a female relative. Yeah. And it's a really sweet picture. It is really Also, sweet. he was really, really tall, at least judging by this photo. And then there's a picture of him as a baby. Oh. I know. Oh. It's really sweet. That is so sweet. And I also have the composite, which I believe was the neck mech one. Yes. So it's actually not too wow. far off. Like the nose is right. And, like, the space, like, this, I'm just looking at, like, the spaces between, like, the mm-hmm. eyes and stuff like that. Yeah, like, the eyebrows are just a bit lower than actual. The only thing I can see that they got kind of wrong is his ears. Yeah, ears are hard. And, oh, these pictures are all from the uh, WBRC article by Beth Shelburne. So this is just a direct quote from the article. His name was Leighton Brown, but everyone who knew him called him Tuan. He was just over six feet tall and handsome, like a young Michael Jordan, his sister Alicia Brown told me from her home in Wisconsin. Tuan was a free spirit, loved to make people laugh, and he was trying to change his life when he vanished at age 20. He was last seen alive on Mother's Day, 1998, near his home in Zion, Illinois. So that would have been his previous home, not where he moved. And so I took a look at the memorial Facebook page that his sister set up. And the first post just says, this is a way to stay connected with him and to bring comfort knowing we can drop him a line. It's also for those that remember him to reach out to him. Prayers are appreciated and accepted. Have a blessed day. Mm. 
So it's just a really nice memorial page where looking at it, you get a better idea of what he was like as a person. Yeah, and like his relationships with people and yeah, his personality. All his friends and family just posting their memories about him. Mm, That's so sweet. It is. So like with all of our cases, hopefully they get a break soon. Yeah, hopefully it's an update. Hi, I'm Christine, and I'd like to introduce you to the True Crime Files podcast, a bi-weekly podcast that focuses on mysterious disappearances and unsolved murders. Every two weeks, we'll be releasing an episode that'll help you get to know a case really well without having to invest a lot of your time. Derived from the articles upon the True Crime Files website, you'll find that our show covers a diversity of victims and perspectives. You'll probably also notice that our episodes are narrated by Scott Fuller from the Frozen Truth and Status Pending Podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to the True Crime Files today so that you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening, being a part of our true crime community, and helping to shine a light on cases that might otherwise be overlooked or underreported. So this episode was meant to go out around christmas but holiday stuff happened so here we are uh but because it's coming out now we want to talk about the wildfires pretty much covering australia yeah um i don't know about anybody else but i basically spent like the holiday break and especially new year's just like watching what's happening in australia with the fires and just feeling like I want to help somehow, but feeling pretty shit about it. Like, what can I do? I'm over here. It's really similar to the Amazon wildfires, which, well, I guess wildfires, half of them were deliberately set, mm-hmm. uh, which are still happening. So just because it's been a while since that happened, make sure you're still paying attention to that, as well as I believe there's fires happening in Indonesia as well. I only know this because of orangutans. Um but the same way with thing with that is the biggest thing you can do to help is donations. So my friend Amy wrote this amazing article for Flair, um, and it's called Feeling Helpless About Australia. Here are seven ways to actually help. So Amy, in this article, uh, she just mentions like where to donate, the best places to donate. There's a GoFundMe initiative for First Nations communities that apparently is really that is a really good place to donate, as well as WIRES, which is the Wildlife Information Rescue and Education Service. She also lists a bunch of other places to support the firefighters themselves, like the New South Wales Fire Service, uh, the Country Fire Service in South Australia. And she also has a bunch of uh, tips on what to do to help without donating. So eating a plant-based diet. Uh keep people aware about what's happening. Don't shut up about it. I think we're doing that one. Yeah, well, kind of relates to the Amazon fires. It's like, just because the world stops talking about one problem doesn't mean it's gone. Mm-hmm. And her other tips are volunteering where you are, even if it's uh, spending an afternoon picking up trash in public areas, that kind of thing. And stimulating Australia's economy because they're going to be feeling this for a while. Oh, yeah. And uh, call your MP or like your, I guess, government representative about uh, climate change plans. Yeah, so that's a mix of things that 
will directly help Australia immediately and stuff that will just help deal with climate change in general, which is why this is happening in the first place. Yeah. So thanks, Amy, for letting me tell you all about that article because I thought it was great. And similar to that is an article that I don't remember if I shared it to our Facebook page, but I definitely shared it on my Facebook. It's a CBS News article by Sophie Lewis about how to help victims of Australia's apocalyptic wildfires. And again, it's um, mostly places to donate. Um, It divides into how to help evacuees, how to help the firefighters, and how to help wildlife. One really cute thing I've seen is like symbolically adopting a koala through the Port Macquarie Koala Hospital, Aww. which is just a nice little thing. And it kind of like puts a little koala face. Yeah, exactly. It. That's one of the good, like WWF also does that with like symbolic adoptions of animals from around the world. I'll definitely post this web, um, this article also on our page along with Amy's. Just, and also another thing um, that has been happening and is crafters from around the world have been making like joey pouches it turns out like the babies of wallabies koalas and kangaroos are all called joeys so just general joey pouches bat wraps uh just things to help in animal rehabilitation centers just like if joeys have lost their mother they don't have like a pouch to hang out in so Give them a pouch. Yeah, and it's just nice. There's um, an American one, a Canadian one, and an Australian one on Facebook. So if you look for the Crafters Guild, you should be able to find it. I guess I'll also link to those. Yeah, And it's just a nice way to help if you are crafty and have like spare material hanging around your house. And as someone who cannot even sew a straight line, I'm so bad. It's really bad. Um, I've been thinking of finding a crafter and gesturing towards Caitlin to like donate to, to be like, here's fabric, here's, I'm trying to help, but I just can't, I can't sew a straight line. Yeah, a lot of people are doing that where they're just like, here's a bunch of fabric I have. Can you use this? Or like donating to shipping. Air Canada, Mm -hmm. um, it has agreed to carry a bunch of cargo for free of donated crafting items oh that's great so that's a super recent thing the first flight is leaving like january 15th from halifax and so everyone's like working together uh, people traveling to australia are taking spare things and i was gonna say that makes sense too because that's lessening the carbon footprint of getting exactly. stuff from canada to australia because that's the huge thing it's like you're wanting to help but it's like okay but what is my impact on the environment with this exactly. thing i'm doing so Things. everyone's like encouraging recycled fabrics and like i well the material i found in the sewing bin at home which yeah. i showed my mom and she's remembers that she had big plans for it i'm pretty sure it was supposed to be curtains i can relate yep i can relate a lot i've had a lot of home ec projects just not happen (laughs) so i'm gonna try and turn that into a kangaroo pouch we'll see how it goes and yeah so to our any australian listeners know that we're thinking of you one of my friends lives in queensland she hasn't been affected yet but i'm keeping an eye on her because yeah so, yeah, so we're thinking of you. Yeah, hearts go out to everybody that's battling it over there, and we're trying to help. We're doing what we can from over here. Um, so if you want to see those two articles, I'll post it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, and we'll also post them on our Facebook, uh, which is facebook.com slash podcast. Our Twitter is also twitter.com slash podcast. Our Instagram is instagram.com 
slash dope podcast. And if you want to email us, it's dopepodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, go to those places to find us. And it'd be super cool if you could rate and review us on, I guess, what, Apple uh, Tune, uh, Apple Tunes. Apple please, Tunes. Please rate and review on Apple Tunes. I am like an old lady, honestly. <laughs> I, love I love it. And thank you so much to anyone who's already rated and reviewed us. Yes. Thank you so much. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. It makes my day when I see yeah. that. So thank you so much. I guess until next time, which is going to be a super special episode. It is. We're cooking up some stuff. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.